questions we can. What are you committed to? To whom are you committed? A friend of mine was feeling kind of out of shape, kind of sucking wind going up steps. So he decided to sign up for a triathlon. So in the mornings before work, what he did was he ran, you know, three or four times a week. And he was feeling pretty good about the run. And on the weekends, he'd bike, you know, 40, 50 miles. And so he was actually feeling pretty good about the bike. But he hadn't had time for the swimming portion. He was feeling not very confident about the swim. Now, if you've ever been to a triathlon or ever been in one, the swimming part is usually first. So my friend donned his swimsuits and his, his goggles, and he said that he kind of waded into the, the lake, and he said it was like a flash of fish as the good swimmers started to swim out. And he was obviously the slowest one in the race. <laughs> but he was committed. He said he tried to swim freestyle for a little while, and then he did his backstroke. But he knew shortly into the race he was in deep, deep trouble. He said the saving grace for him was the buoys. <laughs> he learned to swim 50 yards or so, and then he kind of hung on to a buoy for dear life, getting his heartbeats below 150. And he says another part of it was the race officials saying, hey, no, you, you can do it, you can do it, keep going. He actually finished the swim portion of the race with 15 seconds to spare <laughs> before he got disqualified. <laughs> but he told me, he says, you know, when we commit ourselves to something, there's this huge risk of failure. We risk really being embarrassed. We risk really people making fun of us. What are you committed to? To whom are you committed? Many of us find commitment very hard. We ask the question, are you coming? Are you coming over? Are you coming to the wedding? And what we hear is, I'll let you know. I need to check my calendar. I'm not sure quite what we're doing. And so we say, can you let me know sometime soon? We walk into Costco, and uh, immediately we're confronted with, would you like to commit to a business membership? We want to know, what does this entail? You know, what does this involve? What are the uh, costs involved? What are the benefits? Our kids want to play a sport, and there's a commitment. There's practices and games and pictures and uniforms and expenses and travel. So when it comes to commitment, we find ourselves sort of hesitant, hesitant to sign on the dotted line. One of the big issues for our students is the commitment to college. I have one who remains, Josh, and so he had a college he applied to. And so you wait and you wait, you pray and you pray, and then you get the text message that says, you know, check the mail, it's coming soon. And so you open up the mail, and in his case, you've been accepted. But then beyond the acceptance to a college is the commitment, the commitment for four years of your life to a specific college. Studies are showing that men are having a hard time, are you surprised, committing to marriage. There seems to be a pessimism about marriage, deep reservations about whether marriage is even necessary. Many men would rather have the benefit of living with somebody and not making the commitment. Often the issue now is compatibility. Compatibility defined as, I hope she leaves me alone, <laughs> doesn't press me too hard to do stuff. Many are feeling as if marriage is hard to commit to. Men have seen marriages crash and burn. Perhaps they've been previously married before, and there's wounds from the past. 
Maybe they're afraid they won't be compatible. We said last week that the path we pursue will always determine our destiny. The question we often ask is, you know, how do we get here? And the answer is we've always taken a path. It's true for me in regards to directions. I don't have the very best sense of direction. I'm one of those guys that needs a Google map. You know, I need a Google map that gets me to where I'm going, but also needs to get, get back to where I've come from. I uh, actually love my GPS most of the time, but I, what I really love is to have a navigator beside me with a GPS operating, kind of telling me where to go. You know, in my life, I've never really tried to get lost, but I've been lost so many times. You know, paying attention to the person on beside, listening to music. And so I asked the question, you know, how did I get here? And the answer is, I took a path. Of all the paths I could have taken, I chose a path. And the path I pursued determined my destination. I am where I am. You are where you are because you've been on a path. Now, this doesn't negate the sovereignty of God because God is over all things. And God puts us into situation and God orchestrates and God arranges that God is sovereign. A young man will say, how did we get here? A young woman will say, how do we end up together? And the answer is they took a path. And the path they pursued determined their destination. We can look back on our lives, can't we, and see the sovereignty of God arranging, orchestrating our lives. You see, a couple just didn't find themselves somewhere. There was a path they pursued. Let's say you went to college somewhere. You sat in the same classes with somebody or sat in the same dining commons or you had mutual friends and they kind of uh, put you together. You found at first there was an attraction, right? You were on a path. And the path you pursued determined your destination. Now, the question in relationships always is not where are we, where are we, but where are we going? Where is this relationship going? The sovereignty of God speaks to the, to the loving kindness of God. Because God is good and God is loving, he arranges circumstances that we can come together. I like to ask couples, you know, how did you guys meet? And there always is this story that they will tell. My story is that when Debbie and I met, I wasn't yet a Christian. But I was invited to a young couple's weekend, and there I met Debbie. You asked, how did we end up married? Well, God began to arrange circumstances, and there's a path we began to pursue, and that path determined our destiny. And about 30 years ago, Debbie and I entered into a marriage covenant. I remember watching a drama recently on television in which a man and a woman were living together and were having an argument about whether they should get married. He wanted to marry her, but she didn't want to get married. She said, why do I need a piece of paper to tell you that I love you? I don't need a piece of paper to tell people, tell you I love you. What she was saying is, I already feel something for you. I feel like we were meant together, meant to be together. I feel like we have good chemistry. I feel like we have a good connection. I feel as if we're soulmates. And because we're soulmates, we can become roommates. I'm getting what I need out of this relationship. 
you're making me happy, why would I mess this up? Now, you could say that she was right in saying a piece of paper could do nothing to add to her feelings of love. But when the Bible speaks about love, especially covenantal love, it is measured not by how much you receive, it is measured rather by how much you give. You see, the measure of marriage is how much are you willing to give? How much are you willing to die to yourself? How much are you willing to die to your independence? And how much are you willing to give sacrificially to your partner? By this person saying, let's not ruin it by getting married, they're saying, I'm keeping my options open. I'm not going all in. I'm afraid this may not end up well. I'm really not ready to get married. And what really was being said was, you're not worth committing to. You're simply not worth it. In sharp contrast to our culture, the Bible teaches that the essence of marriage is a sacrificial commitment to the well-being and good of another. Marriage in its covenantal form is a relationship between a man and a woman. I didn't think I ever had to say that part, but it's a relationship between a man and a woman, a sacrificial commitment toward the well-being of the others. I think that what we find in America is rather more of a vending machine relationship. You see, marriage has become more of a consumer kind of contract. You know, when you're hungry, you go to a vending machine, right? <laughs> and you put your money in, you push the buttons, and something comes out. And so you go to the vending machine, and you put your money, and you get something out. And the vending machine supplies what you need. But if the vending machine fails to supply what you need, then you go to another vending machine, perhaps with better service, or the same service at a better cost. You see, vending machines can be changed out at a person's will. Really, if people were honest about their wedding vows, they could say something like this. I take you to be my beneficial wife, to have, to take advantage of, to impress my will upon you. This contract is only good until this marriage gets hard. This marriage is null and void if we fall out of love with one another or if this really isn't easy anymore. Either party can basically bail for any reason they want, they deem worthwhile. The vending machine relationship. So what is this covenantal relationship? Well, first of all, God enters into covenant with us. You see, God makes promises to us. God promises never to leave us nor forsake us. God promises to love us now and forevermore. God promises to be there for us in our times of need, in the good times and the bad. You see, we enter into a covenantal relationship with God. We become his people. And then we make covenant with each other to love each other in the good times and in the bad, in the adversity and the prosperity, in the sickness and in health. We're promising never to leave each other. We're promising to be faithful to each other. And it's a blessing for me to see 
the covenants you hold on to and you live out every day of your lives. I saw this covenant being lived out with Dan and Eleanor Duty and their married life together. What held them on was their commitment they made to each other. And Dan was faithfully at her side even in her dying days. He didn't run away from the fight. He stayed in the fight. But we hear so many times, I don't want to be married anymore. I want out of this relationship. I'm filing for divorce. I'm not feeling loved by you. I don't have any feelings of love for you. I don't even think I married the right person. I think I made a big mistake. I have changed, and you have changed, and I found somebody else. And this is where we are. The divorce has become this easy out. We even live in a no-fault divorce state. The judge doesn't even care what the issues pertaining to the couple divorcing are. Some of you heard somebody say, I'm done. I'm through. This is over. I want a divorce. The breaking of the covenant. I don't want to be married anymore. I want to tell you, if you're there, that feeling of rejection is very intense. Somebody has said that divorce is something like a hurricane that sweeps through somebody's life that leaves debris everywhere you look. It takes a long time to recover from a hurricane, and it takes a long time to recover from a divorce. What we're about to look at is a vow. It's a solemn promise. It's a, not a vow between a man and a woman, though these words made it into some of your wedding vows. It's surprisingly the vow made by a daughter-in-law to her mother-in-law. It's a promise, first of all, to God, and secondly, a promise made to each other. Let's look together at that passage in, Roman, in the Ruth chapter 1 and verse 14. At this, these women wept together. The scene is of Orpah, whom Oprah was named after, and Ruth, both of whom had married into Naomi's family. And now Elimelech and the two sons had passed away. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. You know, the word goodbye is a word for God bless you. They had deep feelings for one another and affection. And Orpah kissed her goodbye. But Ruth clung to Naomi. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. It seemed as if... Uh, Orpah was doing what was best for herself, going back to the familiar, going back to her gods, going back to her people. And then Naomi encouraged her. This is her entreaty. Go back with her. I'd like to say that this issue of going back to gods is the issue of idolatry. I just wonder if there are any idols that we go back to in our lives. I just wonder if there's any people that pull us in the wrong direction. You see, what's happening in the story is that Orpah is going back to her gods, back to her people. Without question, idolatry is the most frequently visited problem in the Bible. What is this idolatry? Idolatry is when something else than God has captured my heart. Something other than God's at the center of my heart, the center of my life. 
You see, idolatry is when we take a good thing and we take a good thing and make it into a God thing and then the good thing becomes a bad thing. I wonder how idolatry is shaping our lives in the 21st century. I just wonder if there's any idolatry in our country, any idolatry in our lives we go back to. You know, when Paul visited the town of Athens, he was distressed by the idols that he saw in that town. I wonder how he'd feel if he walked through our town. So let's begin our discussion talking a little bit about the American Idol. It's a good place to start, right? Idol is in the name of American Idol. Now, we would argue that music is a good thing, right? My son Josh wants to study music. Pastor Scott you know, leads us in worship music. Music is the language of the soul. But music, or should I say the music business, can become a God thing. The American Idol has promised a recording contract, promised popularity and wealth. Now, it's possible to be an American Idol and hold on to one's faith, and we surely pray for those who go through the rigors of that contest to hold on to their faith and publicly declare their faith. But it's equally possible to be idolized and believe oneself to be an idol. And it's not a good thing when one believes himself to be an idol or to idolize somebody else. You see, at that point, we have stepped into idolatry. At that point, we have crossed the line. So I began to think about this idolatry from a biblical perspective. Abraham was called out of idolatry. God said to him, leave your people and leave your country and leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. You see, Abram was called to leave behind his idolatry. He himself was an idolater. He was raised in idolatry. And God called Abraham to leave that idolatry behind and go to a place I will show you without a Google map, without a GPS, without a navigator. Simply God would show him the land. And then God made a promise unto Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. God made a promise to him that when he left behind his idolatry, God would give to him something better, a covenant relationship. And then Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. And Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the people went down to Egypt. And believe it or not, in Egypt there was all different kinds of idolatry. They worshipped the sun because they believed the sun gave them benefits. They worshipped the Nile because the Nile flooded and um, um, gave uh, water to their fields. But down in Egypt, there was idolatry. And God was delivering his people out of their idolatry. And so when they came out of Egypt, Moses went up onto the mountain. And there God gave his commands, his commandments. And the first of those commandments was, you shall, have, you shall not have any gods before me. And the second commandment was, you shall not make for yourself any idol. You shall not bow down dear friend of mine, he was um, a biker. 
who loved to spend his weekends biking. And he was studying this whole subject of idolatry. And one day he was uh, shining the chrome on his Harley. And he was spending the weekend sort of getting his Harley up to shape, you know, putting parts in his Harley and shining the chrome. And he read that verse that says, don't bow down to any idols. And he found himself bowing down to his own idol, the idol of his own making. You see, God has made us in his image to worship him. And we have made things in our own image, and we worship them. And through the course of Israel, you find the good kings dealt with their idols, and the bad kings tolerated idols. Israel had this on-and-off relationship with idols. So where can we find these idols in American life? A few months ago, I happened to be in New York City. I was in Times Square. How do you think the Apostle Paul would feel if he were to walk through Times Square? Do you think he'd be distressed by the idols in that place? I was struck as I walked through Times Square with the sensuality, the sexual morality portrayed with the advertisers. I think the Apostle Paul would be distressed. And what is there is all these lights. You know, you're in sensory overload in Times Square. And the advertisers are trying to sell things. They, they know that we all struggle with pain and insignificance. But if you buy what we're selling you, you can have a meaningful life. If you buy the clothes we want you to wear, if you buy the shoes we want you to put on, if you eat the food that we're selling, if you drive the car we want you to drive, then your life's going to be better. You see, God made us to be content with what we have. But what an advertiser is trying to do is make us discontent with what we have to crave something else, to crave another pair of shoes, to crave something else for our closet, to crave something else to drive. How about FedEx Field? <laughs> do you think the Apostle Paul would be distressed by what football has become in American life? used to be one of the most asked questions in America was, where do you go to church? Currently, one of the most asked questions is, what time is the game? Yesterday, um, Debbie was shopping at a grocery store during the Ravens game. And they were saying, you know, are you aware the game's on? Uh, Debbie wasn't even aware the game was on. I actually wasn't aware the Ravens were playing either. And she came home and said, the Ravens are playing. What has football become in American life. Do you know we have now 50 different sports networks available to us? We also have fantasy football. We also have ESPN. And if ESPN is enough, we have ESPN 2. And if ESPN is not enough and ESPN 2, we have ESPN 3. We have pregame analysis. We have postgame reports. We have taken a good thing and made it into a God thing and it's turned into a bad thing. Do you think that in America, football has become idolatrous? Do you think it has begun to control people's lives, dominate their weekends? How many hours do we spend a week, you know, watching and analyzing football, talking about football? What has 
football become an American life? Well, let me continue to step on your toes. Let's think about the election, the campaign, the outcome. Did that surface any idolatry in American life? In regard to the outcome of the most recent election, the losers in the election felt despair, hopelessness. We're done. America's going down the tubes. We're very concerned about the direction of America. But this is what the losers said. Because all of our hopes were placed on a candidate, and the candidate didn't get elected. Therefore, the nation will collapse. The winners in the election felt devotion, euphoria, hope. America's on the right track. Because they got the vote out, because the people voted for their candidate, they felt America will benefit. I want to tell you that both despair and devotion point to idolatry. When your week is governed by the game, when your life crashes because of an election, it points to an inordinate affection you have towards something. The University of Maryland recently did a study on cell phones. And so they took from the students, actually gave them money, 1,000 cell phones. 1,000 students at the University of Maryland surrendered their cell phones for 24 hours. And 50% of the students couldn't make it through 24 hours without their cell phone. Some of them had phantom symptoms of something's vibrating in my pocket when it wasn't there. They felt disconnected with their world. They felt anxious and irritable. They had the symptoms of withdrawal. And the conclusion of the study was that cell phones had become the security blanket of this generation. Pastor R would say it's become the idol of this generation. So a friend of mine was studying idolatry. He's getting ready to preach a sermon like this. And so he had arranged that his iPhone 5 would be delivered on Saturday. And he is <laughs> studying this passage. And he started thinking, you know, maybe this phone means more to me than I think it means. He canceled his whole schedule. He was waiting for the UPS guy to come with his phone. And he texted his wife, because they ordered two, and said, I'm thinking about telling this guy, this is idolatry, take it back. And his wife said, don't you dare. Where are the idols in our lives? Where has our affection shifted from God to something else, to somebody else? You see, a marriage can be an idol. A child can be an idol. Money, vocation can become an idol. What has become an idol to you? Why does God want us to forsake and destroy the idols of our life? Is it because that God believes that these idols have something he doesn't have? Is God really worried about a football game or a shopping spree or a cell phone? The reason why God wants us to destroy the idols in our life is they control and destroy our lives. If you've ever seen an Apple release, the release resembles more of a religious revival. You weren't there. I mean, if you were there, just a casual observer, and watching them carry on, you think you're in church more than an Apple product being delivered. God is grieved by our idolatry. 
Not because these idols have something God doesn't have. It's because the idols promise us something and don't deliver. The idol says, come on over here. Here's where you'll find some comfort. And the idol delivers comfort for a little while. But then the comfort moves to enslavement. And we find ourselves in bondage to an idol. I want to tell you something. (laughs) Where we're working in Haiti, they have all different kinds of idolatry. Now, God has blessed their nation. And God wants to flow blessings in their nation. But before the blessings will flow to them, they got to break union with their idol. And the same is true in this country. God is ready to bless this land. God has given us an abundance. But we have to break union with that idol that's in our life where our affection really lies. We have to dislodge the idol from the center of our heart and let God be at the center of our heart and let our life flow out of our relationship with God, not to our idol. Where is the idol in your life? Where is that attachment and affection that is stronger than God? Now, let's look specifically at this verse, verse 16. Ruth says these words, Don't urge me to leave you. Don't urge me to turn back from you. Now, I want to tell you, this was what true friendship is. Because a friend loves at all times. Because I love you, I'm trying to tell you the truth. A brother is born for adversity. You see, a friend walks into our life when somebody else walks out. A friend never bails on us when it gets hard. Now, granted, Naomi was trying to push her away, thinking what is best for Ruth. She'd be better off in her own land, better off with her own people. But Ruth is not thinking what's best for herself. She's thinking what's best for Naomi. True friendship will always focus on what's best for the other. The essence of true marriage is a focus on what's best for the person I'm committed to. You see, it's dying to ourself. It's dying to our need to be in control. It's letting Christ live through us. Friendship is always tested with adversity. In this case, true friendship is being severely tested. And Ruth is not running from the relationship. She's choosing to take the journey with Naomi. It's likely that Ruth has never been on this path before. There was a path going back to the familiar, but there also was a path toward redemption. And Ruth believes that God is going to take care of her. She's a woman living by faith. And then she said these words, Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Ruth is saying, I don't know how many mountains we'll have to climb together. I don't know how many streams and rivers we'll have to cross. I don't know how difficult the journey will be. But I do know this, that where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. The point is, we will be together. If we have to pass through the deep waters of cancer, I will go with you. If we have to face the deeper waters of depression, I will go with you. When Debbie and I were talking about being married, we talked about where we'd live. We both were from the D.C. area. And Debbie was very happy teaching school near Chicago, a place called Wheaton. And I was in my third year of seminary. And I still remember Debbie saying, where you go, I will go. And uh, 
what you say, I will say. To me, it was a huge concession because I actually liked the town she was living in more than my town. <laughs> but I'll never forget her decision and her words of where you go, I will go. My um, son, Chris, my firstborn, his wife's name is Rachel, and she's from St. Louis. And she moved to Baltimore that they would pursue this relationship. And when she moved there, eventually he asked her to marry him. And they lived in Baltimore for two years. My um, daughter, Betsy, recently moved to Baltimore with her uh, husband, Matt. She's going to school there. But where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. And more recently, my son, Jimmy, who was just married this summer, his wife's name's Kelly, and she's from Minneapolis, a very beautiful suburb of Minneapolis. And she recently went to Fort Benning, Georgia, where she's learning all about sweet tea and grits. And she said, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. It's a language of commitment. It's a language of devotion. It's a language of faithfulness. And your people will be my people. Not only am I willing to travel with you, to live with you, but my people will become, your people will become my people. Ruth finds herself in the proverbial fork in the road. She can go back her familiar path to Moab. Or she can take a brand new path that will take her to Bethlehem, the pathway of redemption. This is what Peter's saying, that you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people belonging unto God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. We are the body of Christ. These are your brothers and sisters. And so because we are the people of God, we're devoted to one another, not only when life is easy, but when life becomes hard. And that's why we make covenant with each other. And then her final words are, and your God will become my God. When I was over in India, I had an opportunity to share the gospel many, many times to share Jesus with people who believed in many different gods. You come into the airport in Chennai, there's a big elephant there that's all decorated with gifts of flowers and fruit beneath it, one of the gods they worship. And so I began to tell the people about Jesus. And they said, we can add Jesus to our gods. There's room in India for another god. We'll make Jesus one of our gods. I didn't say, no, no. I didn't say we're going to add Jesus to your gods. I'm saying make Jesus your God. I'm saying no other gods before him. I'm saying bow down to no idols. Worship no idols. You see, they took what was good, a good thing, and they made it a God thing. And the good thing became a bad thing because they were worshiping the wrong thing, you follow so in America, God is calling us to repent, to forsake the God we've been worshiping, that we might worship the true and living God. And when we do, then we will do what he tells us to do. 
And we will say what he tells us to say. We will follow him wherever he leads us. This is Ruth's confession of her faith. This was her commitment to God. To forsake her own people, to forsake her own past, to no longer be identified by her sin or by her nationality, but to follow the one true living God, to follow him on a path of redemption. Who else is willing to follow him? Is there anybody here who's willing to follow Jesus? This is a foreshadowing of the gospel, what calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. Jesus deserves to be followed. The other gods will lead to slavery and imprisonment and bondage. This is the God who will bring freedom into your life, and God wants to set you free. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are stunned by the commitment that Ruth was making to leave something behind. But we won't be stunned this morning, Lord, if you're working in someone's heart whom the Holy Spirit has identified there's something else that I'm holding on to. I'm holding on to my past. Or I'm holding on to my sin. Or I'm holding on to my idol. God, in your very presence, we say, I forsake that idol. And I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to follow you on the pathway to redemption. I want to follow you into freedom. I want to be delivered from a slavery, from a bondage. And I want to find true freedom. I want Jesus Christ in my life. I want to follow him wherever he leads us. Whatever path we take together, wherever the path goes, I will follow. Wherever he moves in my life, I will go. Whatever he says to me, I will do. Because I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. There's just one this morning. Keep your eyes closed, your heads bowed. One this morning says, I want to follow. Just lift up your hand. I want to follow Jesus. Others. So, Father, for that soul, those souls who want to follow you, Lord, I pray now for the grace and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to follow you with that commitment to follow you, Lord, the days of his and her life, to follow you, Lord, to find the sweetness of communion with you. God, we pray in Jesus' name. So glad you came to join us this week. Uh, we invite you to join with us again next week as we jump in even further into the story of Ruth and how God redeems the person of Ruth and Naomi and brings along a, uh, a man to be the kinsman redeemer. So glad you joined us. We'll see you next week. Thank you.